to open your Bibles to John chapter 4. We're making our way through the life and teachings of our Lord Jesus Christ. And uh, for the last two weeks, I talked about the two points of his first sermon, repent and believe. Jesus comes into Galilee and And his sermon was, repent and believe the gospel. The kingdom of God is at hand. The uh, various phases of Jesus' ministry are designated by, usually by where they took place. And so we have just emerged from the early Judean ministry. And now we have entered upon the great Galilean ministry. And so most of what is included in Matthew, Mark, and Luke is a record of what happened during the great Galilean ministry. It it occupied approximately one-half of our Lord's public ministry. And uh, so that's what we're entering in upon. Remember, Galilee is the region in which Jesus grew up. And uh, he uh, switches his his uh, base of operation to the town of Capernaum, and, uh, but now we find him this morning in the town of Cana. But uh, we'll begin with uh, verse 43. After the two days he departed for Galilee, these were two days that he spent on his way to Galilee from Judea. He had spent those two days in Samaria. And uh, several weeks ago, we saw how that there were a great many people from the town of Sychar, Samaritans, who had come to believe in Jesus. So he stayed with them for two days. Many of them became believers, and so now he departs for Galilee. For Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. I think it literally says, in his own country. Now, this is a proverb that uh, appears more than once in, in the Gospels. And it usually refers to his being disrespected in the area where his family lived and where the people had known him. And uh, causes a little bit of an interpretational difficulty, which I'll get to in just a minute. So Jesus had said, a prophet has no honor in his own hometown or in his own country. But now he's gone to his own country. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him. That's not really what I would expect to follow. A prophet has no honor in his hometown. But they welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. I'm going to make a major point out of this, but let me make a minor explanation right now. So I think that uh, verse, 40, verse 43 picks up where verse 3 left off. So let's look back. At the first of the chapter, when it says uh, in verse 1, Now when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. And then verse 4 begins the, the interruption, which is, Here's what happened as he was on his way. But the journey has already commenced. He's leaving Judea. The reason that he's leaving Judea is because there was uh, a lot of animosity that was always already building up against Jesus at this time, very early in his ministry. 
And uh, the antagonism was so strong that there was a danger that uh, he was going to be killed prematurely. I mean, from a, from a human perspective. And so Jesus does not stay there and, uh, and fight against his antagonists. He can, with honor, withdraw to a safer place. And so that's what he does. And he is withdrawing to a place where it is unlikely that he is going to encounter the same kind of antagonism that he has been experiencing. And so I think that's the explanation of that little parenthetical. Now, Jesus himself had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own country. So the Galileans, while they were Jews and they were religious, were not as high-strung as the Jews who lived around Jerusalem in the southern part of the country, which was Judea. So I think that's the explanation of what this means. And Jesus is going to a place where he is likely to have more, more peace and less antagonism than he has encountered in Judea. And uh, so I think that verses 43 through 45 are a continuation of what we have in verses 1 through 3. Now let me continue because that's not one of my main points. Let me continue reading the text and then I'll tell you what the two main ideas are that I'm going to focus on. So he came again to Cana in Galilee where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you, and that's a plural you, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. So Jesus considers this man to be a spokesman for um, kind of the, the attitude that everyone in that region had. They had heard that he had done miracles, and now they want to see him do some miracles. And so Jesus says, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. Actually just says his son was living. I don't like, I don't like if the ESV used the word recovering there. <clears throat> so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. So the reason I don't like the word recovering is that when Jesus says, in verse 50, go, your son lives. He doesn't, isn't, he doesn't use a future tense there. He uses a present tense. Go, your son lives. He's been healed. And so I don't like it that in verse 51, they, they choose to say his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. They just said, your son lives. And they, he, so he asked them the hour when he began to get better. So from the father's perspective, this probably was a gradual healing. But then they correct him and say, they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. I mean, it was dramatic. He was healed right then. By the way, <clears throat> the seventh hour is probably reckoned by Roman civil time. There are places in the Bible where time is reckoned from the Jewish calendar, which would be hours after sunrise, and so the sixth hour would be noon. 
But I think that here it's, uh, it's probably Roman civic time, and so probably 7 o'clock in the evening. Uh, <clears throat> if I don't forget, I'll mention why I think that. <clears throat> so they said, seventh hour yesterday, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the, the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. There are about eight signs that are mentioned in the Gospel of John. This is the third one. So the first sign was his turning the water into wine. That's showing that he has power over creation. Show A sign is pointing to Jesus and saying something about Jesus. So the sign when he turns the water into wine shows that he has power over creation. When he cleanses the temple, it is a sign pointing to Jesus to say he has authority in matters of religion. And now when uh, he heals someone from a distance, it's showing that he has power over sickness and over death and that, and that distance is no barrier to him. Now, the two main ideas that I'm going to focus on from this text of Scripture are centered around two questions. What does this text tell us about Jesus, and what does this text tell us about faith? So what does this text tell us about Jesus, and what does this text tell us about faith? There are a number of families in our congregation who have uh, adopted children. And I look out and I can see several of the adopted children who are, who are present in, in this congregation right now. Of course, uh, when, when a family adopts a child, they don't want to, to merely give the child a legal place to stay. They also want to rear that child and influence that child. And uh, since the families in our church are Christian families, they want to teach them the principles of Christianity and pray that the Lord will one day... Uh, give the new birth to these, these children that they have adopted into their families. And uh, one, of the, one of the effective ways that uh, the principles of a family are taught to an adopted child is if there are older children in the family who have embraced the family principles and the family plan, those older children can have a real influence on influencing the younger children. So those of you in this congregation who are older children, just be conscious that you have a disproportionate influence on the younger children and try to use it, try to use it for good. Well, we have an older brother in the Christian family. We have been adopted into, into the family of God, and we have an older brother, and that older brother is Jesus. So what Jesus has done for us does give us a legal standing with God. We are justified. We are accepted uh, by God as not guilty, and we are accepted as righteous for the righteousness of Christ imputed to us and received by faith alone. But God does not only justify us. When he effectually calls us, he also adopts us. And uh, one of the principles of our character being formed in God-likeness is to look at our older brother. Romans chapter 8 says that uh, one, of the, one of God's great aims in the gospel is that Jesus might be the firstborn among many brothers. In other words, there are certain principles, 
that Jesus embodied that we too may embody. And one of the clearest ways that we can see them is through the example of Jesus. There are uh, character qualities. There are virtues that Jesus embodied. And as we look at Jesus, this is one of the most effective ways of these character qualities and these virtues being established in us. This is the way Paul puts it in one of the Corinthian letters. When Moses came off the mountain, he had a veil on his face. And he said, and that veil remains to this day because there are many, many Jewish people who do not see the glories and the beauties of Christ. But we all with unveiled faces, so the veil has been taken off of our face, we all with unveiled faces behold as in a mirror Jesus Christ. And as we gaze at him, we are changed from one degree of glory to another. I don't know how much you read biography, but uh, if you have read a good biography, then you probably put it down saying, I want to be more like that person. There's something that that person did very well, and I, I want to be like that. Right now, I'm, I'm reading a biography of Eric Little. Many of you will know of him as the, the famous runner that was portrayed in Chariots of Fire. And uh, that was a pretty good movie. There's some things, uh, there pr- some things about Eric Little that are not quite true, but they got the main part of it right. A very godly man uh, who, who was also a very talented runner. And uh, as, I re- as I read the biography of Eric Little, I see things about him and I think, I want to be like that. I-, I want those. Well, that's the same principle that happens when we read a story like this and we see some of the virtues that Jesus manifests, that as we gaze at them, we, th- we say to ourselves, I want to be more like that. So what are some of the things that we can observe uh, from the life of Christ here that we can imitate? Certainly, we're not going to be able to heal people who are 16 miles away, but there are some things here that we can imitate. And the first thing is Jesus had a very clear sense of the big picture. So uh, he saw that his life was going to be His life purpose was likely to be interrupted and from a human perspective even cut short if he remained in Judea. And he knew that the Father had more for him to say and more for him to do, and so he patterns his life accordingly. So he he sees, I'm going to go into a region of the country where I am not going to attract the same sort of attention that I have been attracting in Judea. And some of, not all of that attention was bad. There were adoring multitudes that were following after Jesus. And so Jesus says, I'm going to go into a part of the country where a prophet has no honor so that I can do what needs to be done. So Jesus voluntarily turned away from something that many people in our day are are desperately clutching for, and that's fame, that's notoriety. But Jesus deliberately turned away from a region where he had great fame and notoriety and went to a place where he was less likely to be appreciated by those who appreciated him. It's true that he was less likely to be persecuted by those who were persecuting him, but he was also deliberately turning away from the adulation that would have surrounded him in Judea. 
I think that when Jesus makes a choice like that, he is showing that he is drawing his sense of worth and his sense of identity from God, from an unceasing source. And when you and I can imitate Jesus in that, and when when our identity is based in who we are in, in God and the fellowship that we have with God, it makes it far easier for us to turn away from alluring distractions. Jesus saw the big picture. And the main part of the big picture is that I am here to serve God. I am here to do what my Father has sent me to do. But Christian, that's also why you are here. That's also why I am here. And we need to ask ourselves, with all of uh, the distractions that we face, is this helping or is this hindering me in doing what I'm primarily here for? Now, this doesn't mean that you have to stop your job and devote yourself to praying hours a day and reading the Bible uh, the rest of the time. Whatever job it is that the Lord has given you, you need to find a way that you can do that job because you love God and practice the presence of God while you are doing it. And if you have that kind of a focus and that kind of a a satisfying feeling from God, then it will give you courage to be courageous when you ought to be courageous. It will give you the ability to turn away from alluring distractions in the same way that Jesus did. So the first thing that I want us to see about Jesus is that he saw the big picture, especially the privilege of being united with God and the responsibilities that flowed from it. But then notice something else about the Lord Jesus Christ here. As we get into the story of the, um, of the man, this man comes to him and says, Please come and heal my son. And verse 48, Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. As I pointed out, the yous in this verse are plural yous. So unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will not believe. This seems harsh. This is probably not what uh, we would expect, certainly not what the average admirer of Jesus would expect. Here's a man who is in a desperate situation. His son is about to die. We can't blame this guy for going to Jesus and asking him, will you please come and heal my son? And instead, Jesus says something that seems at the very least abrupt. And honestly, it just seems harsh. He, he picks this moment to say, unless you see, unless y'all see signs and wonders, y'all will never believe. Now, here's a principle that I think that we can learn from the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I'll say more about it. That sometimes when you really love someone, it's necessary to rebuke them. And that's what this is. This is a rebuke to this man, and I think he takes it well. I think he passes this test with flying collars. But Jesus, Jesus is harsh with him and says, all you, all you just think of me as someone who is a miracle worker. And you're never going to go on to the next, the next step, which is so important because if you just stay right here, your son might get healed, but you are going to go to hell when you die. And your family is going to go to hell when you die. 
you need to you need to see me as more than just some kind of super powerful miracle worker who can heal people. And so it was a rebuke. I wouldn't be surprised if there's more to this conversation than we have. But I do think that uh, one lesson that we can learn here is that sometimes when you really love someone, it's necessary to rebuke them. The book of Proverbs has a lot to say about this. Open rebuke is better than secret love. He who corrects a man will afterwards find more favor than he who flatters with the tongue. And in the New Testament, we have those of you who are spiritual, when you see someone overtaken in a fault, restore such a one in a spirit of meekness. We find uh, Paul rebuking Peter when Peter was uh, hypocritically being nice to the Gentiles until the Jews came around. And then he withdrew from fellowshipping with the Gentiles. And, and Paul said to him, that's not right. You're doing wrong. The Bible says uh, that if there is a problem between you and your brother, first of all, just go, just between the two of you. And none of us like those little conversations, but that's the first step. Go and see if you can make it right, just the two of you. If that doesn't work, then there, there are succeeding steps that can be taken. In one of the most famous verses of Scripture in the Bible, Matthew 7, 1, Judge not that you be not judged. Jesus follows it up and shows us that it doesn't mean what the average American thinks that it means. The average American thinks that when Jesus says, judge not that you be not judged, that Jesus is saying, you mustn't disapprove of the choices that someone else makes. If you do, then you're being judgmental. That clearly is not what Jesus is saying if you pay attention to what he says next. When he says, why do you behold the little speck that is in your brother's eye and you don't see the big beam that is in your eye? You hypocrite. First, Remove the beam from your eye, and then you can see to remove the speck from your brother's eye. So he's not saying don't ever pay attention to the faults that your brother has. He says in order to be effective, you cannot be guilty of the same thing and expect him to hear you. So throughout the Bible, there is the idea that if you really love someone, then there are times when it is necessary to rebuke them. You, you parents know this. You love your children. You would give your life for your children. But sometimes it is necessary to rebuke them. Sometimes it's necessary to spank them, necessary to discipline, because you love them more in the long run than you want their temporary approval. And so you're willing to incur their temporary disapproval so, so that they might enjoy a greater good in the days to come. Uh, Hebrews chapter 12 says, No discipline for the present seems pleasant, but afterward it yields the peaceable fruit of righteousness. And I think that's the principle that is governing Jesus here when he, when he rebukes this man. Unless you all see miraculous signs and wonders, you all will never believe. And I think the man responded beautifully. I think that he received the rebuke. Yes, you're right. I need to see you as more than that. But then he continues his petition. Please come down before my child dies. And then Jesus says, you may go. Your son lives. So I think that in doing this, Jesus was demonstrating patience. 
I don't think that this man had yet achieved the level of mature faith that Jesus was hoping for and that Jesus could see that he was going to have. Before this, before this account is over, he makes great strides in faith. But Jesus, nevertheless, is patient and deals with him in his present situation and according to his desires. So that's something that you can admire in Jesus because, believe me, he has to be patient with me and he has to be patient with you. If he waited until we got it all right and asked just exactly the right way before he gave us what we were asking for, we would be in a pitiful shape. Thank God that the Holy Spirit intercedes for us with groanings that words cannot express because a lot of the time we just don't know what to say. Or sometimes we say the wrong thing and the Holy Spirit cleans it up and says what what he really needs is this. What she really means is this. And there are times when we don't even have any words at all and we just kind of, God, deal with this situation. I lift it up to you. And the Lord is patient. And we can imitate him in that. And we can be, we can be patient and uh, not, not be so quick to, uh, to get angry, not be so quick to conclude that someone is hopelessly immature, but to be patient like, like our older brother, that he might be the firstborn among many patient brethren. Now, the fourth thing that I want you to see about Jesus in this passage of Scripture is his power. And I think this is probably the main point of the passage. So from 16 miles away, he says, your son will live. Your son lives. Your son lives. And 16 miles away, suddenly, the fever left that boy. And this boy who was close to death feels fine. It was remarkable. Those, those servants, those slaves who were around, the, the members of the household who were probably just hoping, I hope that he can live until the miracle worker gets here. And then suddenly, like, wow, he sits up in bed, probably asks for a drink of water. I don't know. Maybe asked for something to eat. You sure? You, you feeling okay? I feel great. I, I feel fine. And they noticed that it was at the seventh hour, which I, which I think was seven o'clock, in the evening. Now, one reason that I think that it was seven o'clock in the evening is because the father doesn't learn until the next day that his boy is living. If it were the seventh hour by Jewish reckoning, that means that it would be one o'clock in the afternoon, and you can cover 16 miles from one o'clock in the afternoon before nightfall. But being seven o'clock in the evening, Then the father traveled perhaps part of the way back to Capernaum. Or maybe he just said, we'll wait and do it in the morning. But anyway, it seems to me unnatural that if if the father is concerned that his son has been very sick, it seems unnatural that he would wait all day and take care of a few things in Capernaum while he was there before he goes back the next day. So I think it was in the evening and then the next morning, Uh, He's on the way. The slaves from his house are running, happy with the news. Your boy's well. He's he's okay. And then the father asks, well, when, when did he start to get better? He's still thinking about a gradual thing. And his servants say, 
No, the fever left him yesterday at the seventh hour. So we've seen four things that this text tells us about Jesus. Now let's see the four stages of faith. There are four kinds of faith that I think are taught here. And um, the first two are sketchy. I'm quite sure that the first one will not get you into heaven. The first one might be characterized as when a person says, you're famous, I want your autograph. Now, I know that in this, in this passage of Scripture, no one is asking for Jesus' autograph, but that's, that's the sort of faith that is manifested in verses 43 and, uh, and 45 and 46. So they, they have seen the miracles. Our boy, our hometown boy is famous. Man, I want to get his autograph. This is the same sort of faith that is described at the end of John chapter 2 when it says, Now while he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many people saw the miraculous, he was, miraculous signs he was doing and put their faith in him. But Jesus would not entrust himself to them. In the Greek it says they believed in him, but he would not believe in them. For Jesus knew all people. He did not need man's testimony about man, for he knew what was in a man. And so this is, this is that kind of faith that just says, wow, you're famous. Can I have your autograph? That's not the kind of faith that will get you into heaven. But then there's a second kind of faith that is mentioned here, and that's the faith that comes from realizing that a person who can, who can do these kind of miracles must be from God. This is what Nicodemus says in, in John chapter 3. Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher who has come from God, for no one could perform the miraculous signs that you're doing unless God were with him. But Nicodemus wasn't saved. Jesus said to him, unless a man is born again, he'll never see the kingdom of God. Unless a man is born of water and the Spirit, he'll never enter the kingdom of God. So it's possible to have the recognition that anyone who can do these kind of things must be from God, and it's still short of saving faith. However, I do think that this could be the beginning of saving faith because of what Jesus says later in the Gospel of John. Philip says, Jesus, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus says, have, have, I, been, have I been with you so long, Philip? And don't you realize that anyone who has seen me has seen the Father? Believe me when I say that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the miracles. You see, that's, that's, it can be the beginning. He has come from God, but then there is a next step that needs to be taken. He has come from God. The next level of faith that we see here is the man took Jesus at his word. So the first level of faith is, you're famous, I want your autograph. The second level of faith is, you're wealthy, can you help me out? The third level of faith is, you're honest, I believe you. And that, I think, can be the beginning of saving faith. That we believe what Jesus is saying, we believe what God has said about Jesus, and we believe it in such a way that it affects us the way that it affected this man. He left. He took Jesus at his word, and then he, just, he didn't keep staying around and say, come on down to the house, you got to come, you got to come. No, he believed, and then he showed that he really did believe. He started heading for home. Or maybe he, he stopped at the inn because maybe it was late in the day 
And he, he didn't want to go until the next day, but he didn't say, oh, we got to get back tonight. He's, he's probably not better. He took Jesus at his word and he departed. But then there's a fourth level of faith that is described here. So that, that third level says, you're, you're honest. I trust you. And this fourth level is saving faith when you say, you are the Christ. I receive you. Now, the word believe is used in the final verse of this text, but it essentially, I think, is a parallel to to receive. So the father finds out, it. my boy got better immediately when Jesus said he would get better, and he himself believed and all his household. So it was such a powerful miracle that not just the man himself, but also the others who were in his household. We would hope that the slaves became believers, hope that, hope that his wife became a believer, that the boy became a believer, that the other children in the family became followers of Jesus. And this is when you are in the kingdom of God. So you may start off with, I admire Jesus, I'd like to have his autograph. You may go further and say, Jesus is very wealthy and he can help me out of troubles, but you can go that far and still not be saved. You need to go to the third level and say, Jesus is honest. I believe him and I'm going to act like I believe him. And I'm going to receive him with all that he is for all that I need. And the Bible tells us that Jesus is, is able to save, a, a, able to save us, and he is willing to save us. And though Jesus himself is uh, sitting at the right hand of the Father, he is able to heal sin-sick sinners from far away. 16 miles, 16 million miles, it doesn't matter to Jesus. He has the ability to speak the word and you come to life. Well, we get to celebrate uh, the Lord's Supper this morning, remembering that uh, we are reconciled to God because Jesus' body was broken and because Jesus' blood was shed. And so those who are going to help to serve the supper... Please uh, come, come forward at this time. And uh, remember that this is a supper for people who have already received Jesus, people who have declared their faith in Jesus through following him in being baptized by immersion after their conversion. And so if you have not been converted or if you've not been baptized, then this is not a meal for you. It won't do you any good and it may do you harm. And I uh, hope that you're not offended by that. Uh, if, uh, if you'd like to talk further about how to become a Christian, then I would be happy to talk with you uh, sometime. And, uh, and many, many people in this church are eager and ready to talk to you about your spiritual condition. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that you will increase our faith and that even now as we eat this symbolic meal that symbolizes the body and blood of the Lord Jesus Christ, that our faith will be increased. That we will not just admire him as a miracle worker, as someone famous, but that we will believe his word and that we will receive him as our Lord and Savior. And we pray this in his name. Amen.
The Lord Jesus said, take and eat, this is my body. 